Before we get into this week's episode, I wanted to mention two upcoming screenings of our guest Matthew Solomon's documentary, Reimagining Safety. First screening is June 1st at the People's Film Festival in Harlem, New York. And the second screening is being hosted by Decarcerate KC on June 14th in Kansas City. You can find out more about the screenings and other news about the documentary at reimaginingsafetymovie.com. And now, here's this week's episode of It's All Journalism. Propaganda that props up policing that gives us this belief that we need police, we need a lot of police, the only way to solve crime is with police, and if somebody commits a crime, the only way to keep us safe is lock them up. And it just doesn't work. The murder of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police in 2020 renewed attention on police violence and the need to reform policing and incarceration in the U.S. It's also put pressure on newsrooms to increase their coverage of this complex and important story. I'm Michael O'Connell. Welcome to It's All Journalism. Matthew Solomon is a documentary filmmaker. His latest film, Reimagining Safety, examines whether more police and more prisons make us safer. The documentary is making the rounds at festivals, and Matthew reached out to us, so we thought we'd have him on the podcast. Matthew, welcome to It's All Journalism. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you here. I I should throw out a caveat out there. I know a lot of people, you know, we're a podcast that's focused at journalism. I have a pretty wide scope as to what encapsulates journalism. And we've had documentary guests on before. So just throwing that out there. But first of all, tell me a little bit about yourself. You know, where are you from? What, you know, what got you interested in being a filmmaker and what led you to uh, your current project? It's a long story. I'll try and keep it short. I'm born and raised in Los Angeles and had the benefit of going to uh, very integrated, diverse schools. And so at an early age, I had the experience of recognizing, observing that my friends who were not white and not male had very different experiences than I did. And so that kind of shaped the foundation of everything. And as I was moving through school, I went, I was actually a professional musician. I went to music school at the University of Southern California and I had long hair and everything and I was going to be a, a rock star. But I, I was going to USC at the same time as the LA, the Rodney King beating, the LA riots, and then the OJ Simpson trial. And my general ed courses included sociology and anthropology. And so I was always fascinated with sociology, how societies are constructed, why laws are made the way that they are, why my friends were having different experiences than I was, you know, and then from the anthropology standpoint, I was raised Jewish and had friends of varying different religions. And so I was fascinated with that. And so I was at USC as a music student and studying these, you know, sociology and anthropology when all of this social unrest was happening and literally systemic racism was playing out in front of me. And so I took that with me as I went through music. I found myself acting at one point, you know, in commercials and movies and stuff. And somewhere along the way, I started writing and I started writing and then I started directing and I started with short films and then feature films and different projects. None of it ever intended except for the rock star part. (laughs) And then you know, I was making films and I started doing conflict resolution because I've always been very 
involved with personal and professional development. And so I was taking courses and seminars and getting trained and learning how to communicate and teach people how to communicate. And so pre-pandemic, filmmaking had kind of, you know, was put off to the side. And I was traveling to universities and corporations teaching conflict resolution and partnership building when the pandemic started and we couldn't go anywhere. And I'm looking around, I'm like, I don't, I don't know what to do now. I actually went back to school and I hadn't finished my music degree because I went off to be a rock star. <laughs> so I finished a bachelor's degree in liberal studies with an emphasis in conflict resolution and then wanted to keep going. And so I found a master's program, master's in public administration at Claremont Lincoln University. And it was very social justice focused. It was very transformative leadership focused, all the things I was interested in and involved in. And so through that course, which was, you know, COVID-19, post-George Floyd, Black Lives Matter protests, the pushback against, you know, critical race theory and all this other stuff. And I think it might have been an election year, too. All of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, you know, the Capitol building insurrection, like all of this stuff going on. And I'm applying our coursework around sustainability and what makes communities work and how to bring people together. And I was applying all of that to the issues with policing and incarceration and politics and governance. And so when it came time to do my final master's thesis, my academic advisors who knew I had made films before were like, you're a filmmaker, you're creative. Why don't you just, you know, do a documentary? It can be like a, you know, short little five to 10 minute thing. And I'm like, we can't cover this topic in 10 minutes. And I'm a filmmaker. So if I do this, it's going to be a movie. It's not going to be like a little video. And they were like, okay, cool, go ahead and do that. And so that's how I found my way into making this documentary, which is really a culmination of like this whole life history that I just kind of laid out in, in a short amount of time. A couple of points of things you, you mentioned. I mean, I think it's pretty admirable that you're sort of able to draw this line between your experience growing up and the events that are going on around you and then connecting them with the things that you were learning in class. Tell me about the film work before. Were those documentaries or were, was it other type of work? No, no, not at all. None of it's been planned out. You know, it started with comedies, you know, comedy like short films, web content. My very first short film was called Kung Fu Man. And it was kind of a, you know, I grew up with the Kung Fu TV series. And around 2008, my wife at the time, we're divorced now, but she she was pregnant with our twins. And I was up late at night and I was watching reruns of Kung Fu and I'm like, okay, this is all great. He's this monk and, you know, very centered, but you know, what if he was married and his wife was pregnant with twins and he had to face like real life stuff, <laughs> you know? And so that was kind of this mashup that I did as a short film that went to festivals and won awards. I did some stuff for Funny or Die. I made a horror film on Skype. It all took place on Skype. It was a short film called Anna, which became a feature film called Chatter, which... Oh, I've seen that. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. So it was, you know, everything took place on Skype. This is before Zoom, you know, before we were doing this kind of thing all the time. And so that was around 2016, 17, and that won a bunch of awards. And so I was kind of, you know, making comedies and horror films and writing dramas and co-writing 
you know, writing for other projects. And then, like I said, it kind of went off to the side as I went into conflict resolution. So documentary was never, filmmaking was never part of my plan, but documentary certainly wasn't. So you get this assignment, you choose this as your topic that you're going to tackle. So to start with, you know, what was the plan? You know, what were you setting out to do? So because this was an academic project at the start, and I had been in academia for my master's program and everything, I really understood that citing sources is key and finding academic sources, finding reputable sources. I knew that I knew that I could make a documentary with just activists and it would provide that perspective, but I wanted it to carry weight and I knew I wanted to have varying perspectives and lived experiences, statistics, you know, things that were quantifiable and qualitative and all, you know, all of that so that it would, so that there weren't a lot of holes that could be poked in it. And so one of my courses, I watched a video. It was a TED talk by a former prosecutor named Adam Foss, who is in San Francisco or the Bay Area. And he was talking about the role that prosecutors play in, you know, if somebody commits a crime, the prosecutor is the one who, you know, really asked for what the sentence should be and how harsh that should be. And he had an experience where there was a teenager who committed a crime. I don't remember what it was, but, you know, could have sent the kid to jail and it would have had a profound and unfortunate effect on his life or he could have which is what he did do is set up this system where the person was actually rehabilitated had a chance to be accountable for what he had done and 10 years later he runs into this person at a party and he's like i got into banking and i'm doing really well and my life totally went in this positive way because of the decision that Adam Foss made as a prosecutor. So I wanted to include the legal perspective. I wanted the activist perspective. Gina Viola, who in Los Angeles ran for mayor of LA on an abolitionist platform and came in third. I wanted to interview her because she had the political experience. There's somebody I'm in community with, Nikki Black, who's a sociologist from Inglewood, who also does anti-racism training and and as a slam poet and all. So I wanted to make sure that I had all this academic weight behind it, but also the different perspectives, sociology. Alex Vitali wrote a book called End of Policing. And I, I was citing his articles and his book in my courses. And I reached out to him and he was like, yeah, sure, let's do it. So all of that. Now, did you come from a particular perspective? I know that you said that you wanted to get different perspectives in. I mean, did you you know, here's the argument from the other side. Did you, you know, try to balance it or at least explain that position? The main thing that I was finding when I was writing papers through my master's program was that there wasn't a lot of academic material on what abolition is and what that looks like or restorative justice, the alternatives to policing. There's a lot of work on the harms caused, especially to black and brown communities. There's a lot of statistics. I forget which agency. There was a government agency that actually said that policing can be considered a mental health issue in certain community for certain communities. You know, so I wanted to really get to if we don't do policing and incarceration, then what do we do? 
and that's the question that always comes up. And then how do we fund it and all of that? And so that's where I was looking. As far as the, the balanced part, I interviewed the LA County District Attorney, George Gascon. And he was a police officer for 40 years. He was LAPD. He was like the second in command to the chief. He was the chief of police in San Francisco. He was the chief of police in Mesa, Arizona. So he had 40 years policing experience in addition to studying, like participating in Harvard studies about the effects of policing and alternatives in different countries. There's a, a woman named Hadia Kennedy who was an LAPD detective for 11 years. So I interviewed her. So I have the police perspective. And, you know, one thing that came out through the course of the documentary is how much we are inundated as a society with propaganda that props up policing that gives us this belief that we need police. We need a lot of police. The only way to solve crime is with police. And if somebody commits a crime, the only way to keep us safe is to lock them up. And it just doesn't work. Like if you look at statistics, if you look at experience, if you look at from a rational perspective, there's an inverse relationship. And so, you know, I included former police officers. Jody Armour, who's a USC law professor, started as a reformer like 15, 20 years ago, where he was like, yeah, we just need better training. We need bias training. We need body cameras. And so there's even a section in the in the documentary where he's talking about all of these things that he believed, if we just change this, it would be better. If we just change that, it would be better. And here we are 20 years later, and it's not. Yeah. Now, you st you said you started this in 2020? No, uh, the documentary, I actually did the interviews last year. So like June 2022, completed the assignment <laughs> in September. And then we had our first official like movie premiere in February 2023. Did the story you were telling, did it go in any particular directions that you didn't really think about at the beginning? Or did your scope kind of expand as you're reporting it? All of that. You know, originally I was thinking I would interview four or five people. And as I got into it and wanted to include more ideas or expand on more ideas, that grew to 10 people. So there are, you know, 10 experts from varying perspectives in the film. One of the things that I didn't expect, which actually, you know, when people watch the film, it makes a lot of sense is, you know, the hardcore abolitionists who are in the film, who are in the trenches doing the work every day, all of them were like, this isn't going to happen tomorrow. You know, we can't get rid of police and prisons tomorrow because we're not set up for it. We don't know. And this was, this was a key thing. Like abolition, restorative justice is really about our care for one another on a deep level as human beings. It's a humane approach. It's not about punishment and retaliation. It's really about care and care for our communities and for one another. And so we're not taught how to do that, which goes back to my conflict resolution work, because a lot of what I was doing and still do is teaching people how to listen and really connect with one another to see that we you know, at a core level, we have the same desires and needs. And it's just a matter of getting all the junk that's in the way that we think keeps us separate out of the way so that we can create partnerships. But we're not taught how to do that. You know, I grew up with, you know, you got to 
suck it up and just deal with it. My kids grew up with use your words, but you know, there's not really, okay, how do I listen to another person so that they feel heard and understood and, you know, taken care of so that they feel safe to connect with me so that we can actually create something. And so that was one of the main takeaways that blew me away that really moved me to tears on several occasions was that it's really about like love at a deep level. It's about our commitment to each other, our care for each other. And if we really cared about each other, how would we approach being in community? Yeah. So you had your premiere in February. The documentary is going out. What has been the, the feedback you've gotten on it? Overwhelmingly positive. We've been doing film festivals, so that's been great. And then we're doing impact screenings with social justice organizations all across the United States. And then hopefully Canada, we have some stuff scheduled in Hamburg, Germany, which came out of nowhere, which was, which is great. You know, people like to talk about the, the radical left, but on the left, it's a really broad spectrum. You know, these are new concepts. Like this is not comfortable work. This is not easy to grasp. There's a lot of stuff that we have to get through and get past. And so one of the cool things is, you know, we had the defund the police movement and slogan and all of that. And there was immediate pushback and there was the rise in crime rates all over the place and politicians using that as, you know, lumped in with critical race theory and all of that soft on crime, like all of the usual <laughs> pushback. But what's really cool is in the film, and this was Dr. L. Jones again, worked on a report that was commissioned through her province in Halifax about detasking, defunding the police, what that would look like, the steps to take, who would be involved in that. It's a really, it's like a 200 and something page report. So through the film, people are able to see, oh, defunding the police isn't just taking money away and we're all on our own. It's going into social programs. It's going into housing and clothing and after-school programs and education and jobs. Because when communities are resourced, and you can look and see the the wealthiest, best resource communities are the safest. You know, it's not the ones that have cops on every corner. So people walking away from screenings saying, wow, I was afraid of the defund the police thing and never knew how to really answer that. But now I understand what that means. That's been a big takeaway and a big benefit. Has there been any criticisms from, you know, people, organizations, publications, journalists who may be coming from a different angle and dismiss what the documentary is? Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> well, I know it's time. coming. I know give it's it coming. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I've been, I've been around, I've been on social media, you know, a long time. And it was interesting at one of our first screenings, somebody had asked if they felt that this movie was propaganda, you know, for abolition. And somebody in the audience was like, well, why is that a bad thing? There's propaganda from the other perspective that we're immersed in. So, you know, yeah, I mean, it's knock wood. There hasn't been anything too negative yet. One thing somebody brought up, like, you know, there's depictions of violence, but we're talking about police violence. So if I'm showing scenes of riots and protests and police, you know, beating people up, in my edit, I edited it also. So I was very strategic in what I show because I didn't want this to be like glorifying violence. And, you know, there's all these traps that you can fall into with that stuff. So I was very, I wanted to make sure the story got told. I wanted to make sure that when somebody makes a point, there's a visual reference because it's a visual medium. 
that's probably the only thing is, you know, somebody was like, oh my God, it's so violent. But, you know, we're, we're talking about police violence. I was going to ask you from a production standpoint, you know, how you visualize something. If you've got 10 talking heads, as it were, what is your approach to making it a, a visual, visually engaging story? You know, one of the things, this being my first documentary, is you really need a lot of B-roll or cutaway footage. So I'm filming stuff. People in the in the film sent me videos that they took. You know, there's websites that have stock footage and, and videos and things like that. And so it was, you know, once I had the structure and the story and all the interviews laid out, then it's like, okay, we need to keep it interesting because it is, you know, it's 10 talking heads. I have two camera angles. So at least I have things, you know, back and forth, yeah, but, but yeah, it's, it's a tough thing. And it's, there's a lot of information in the documentary. Like people walk away and are like, wow, I learned a lot. There's a whole lot in there. You know, we need the break from the, the talking head to something, but also the representation. Cause it's, you know, look, black lives matter started, was it 2013 or 14, I think, after Trayvon Martin and Eric Garner and and Michael Brown, like all of that. And there are so many, unfortunately, so many police killings that have happened and the hashtags that it's easy to forget who was who and what happened to who and all of that. And so when Jody Armour, Dr. Armour is talking in the film about community policing that doesn't work, you know, bias training that doesn't work, body cams that don't work, like it's important to cut to Walter Scott. It's important to cut to Michael Brown, it's Eric Garner, Sandra Bland. A lot of times there's pushback against the sociological impact on people's decisions. It's like, oh, if somebody commits suicide or commits a crime or does something wrong, it's their individual decision. But Dr. Armour in the film talks about how there's a, a sociological influence that leads to that. So in the case of Sandra Bland, which he really spells out beautifully, and then you see it visually, like if she hadn't have been pulled over for the taillight or, you know, whatever it was, dragged out of the car, screamed out on the side of the road, put into a jail cell, she wouldn't be dead. And the police say that she committed suicide. That wouldn't have happened without the police influence, the sociological part contributing like the social impact of the relationship between police and the black community and the way that she was treated by the officer, which is not just the one officer, it's the training, you know, that goes into policing, which is also, you know, we also get into in the film, like it's a culture and that's what it is. It's the cultural influence. So yeah, it's important to show all of that. So people remember, oh, this was that person. And that's why that happened. It's interesting how, you know, the dialogue has changed. I mean, obviously there's, you know, slip back from 2020 as we get further away from it. But some of the communities around where I live and some that I cover are re really looking at hard, looking hard at ways to train police to respond differently. You know, some municipalities are, you know, establishing crisis response teams that are not police officers, but, you know, mental health professionals who are able to, you know, assist somebody who's having a mental health crisis. But, you know, it's all baby steps. There's so many things from so many different directions. But, you know, to what you have done through your documentary, 
you've laid out these are the issues in a very powerful way. And I think that's important for change. And then that's why it's important to put the effort in, you know, trying to tie these pieces together so that the greater dialogue can sort of move forward and real changes can be affected. And going back to my main focus for this film is also showing the solutions, you know, the, okay, if not this, then what? And so that's where, you know, we get to restorative justice. We get to resourcing communities. We get to recognizing, like you were saying, that there are other organizations across the country, Cahoots in Eugene, Oregon, Star in Denver, Colorado. There's an organization in Houston, Texas. Even in, in LA, they're slowly moving into, there's a crisis response that doesn't involve LAPD. And it's baby steps, but like Cahoots and Star in particular, all of the calls that they've responded to have never resulted in further need for an armed officer to show up. And they've also saved their cities millions of dollars annually because, you know, they're not paying out large amounts in court settlements and things like that. Like a big part of LAPD's budget, which isn't in their budget, is these court cases that they have to have attorneys for and pay settlements for. Like Sheriff's Department also. It's a mess. It's a ton of money. So you you've done your first documentary. You've uh, you're taking around to you know festivals. Obviously, you're still in the middle of this. But have you thought about what you might do next? Yeah, there's a couple things. I'm actually going into a PhD program for transformative social change in the fall at Saybrook University, and having done this this documentary and seeing the the possibilities that exist from communities of care. I really want to look at, in documentary style, how would we approach all the different ailments in our society if we really cared about one another? How would we approach education? How would we approach sex intimacy and relationships? How would we approach governing and climate change and guns? Like all of that, through the lens of if we really cared about one another, what would we do? Because right now it's protecting self-interest. It's, you know, we're dug in on our sides and and the almighty dollar, you know, fuels all of it. Matt, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. You know, where can people check this out? The best place to go is the website, reimagininghsafetymovie.com. And that has links to social media. That's the, the best place to start. There's trailer, there's information, there's information about the cast and our, our upcoming screenings. You can subscribe to the site because we're doing impact screenings all over. all over. So that, that would be the best place, reimaginingsafetymovie.com. Okay, excellent. Well, good luck. And I hope to, to see this movie in a theater soon near me. And I'll be interested to see what you're working on next. Awesome. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who report the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. To make sure you don't miss an episode of It's All Journalism, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, Amazon, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. 
It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco is our audio producer. Amber Healy writes our web content. Amelia Brust is our booking manager. Steph Thomas manages our social media. Nick Dupre composed our theme music. Carolyn Belefsky designed our logo. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.